Our sermon this morning is found in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. Hear now the word of God. These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Will you please pray with me? So, Father, we are pleased to be here this morning to hear from you, to study your word, this great and sacred scripture which you have preserved for us for thousands of years, almost 4,000 years, you have seen fit that we may have your word, that we may know you. And so I pray that you would help us this morning as we cast our hearts, Father, upon that which you have made and and your goodness and your care and your love for us. Will you please help us to see you for who you truly are? For I'm afraid, Father, that you are uh, distorted these days. Somehow in our culture, you have become the bad guy. And many would call you evil. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see through the lies that besiege us, that we may cast our gaze upon a good and caring and compassionate God through your word. And so will you please, Holy Spirit, come even now that you may open our hearts to receive it. You may give us a mind to understand it and a soul to delight in it. Will you please change us today, Father? Will you make us more into your image? Will you conform us more into the likeness of Christ because of your word and the ministry of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Around the year 1800, about 50 years before Darwin publicized his theory of origins, there was cataloged already 80 different ideas as to how man came to be. Some suggested that man came from seaweed. Others suggested that he came from apes, well before Darwin did. 
My favorite um, description of how we came about in the 1800s, a popular idea that we came from garbage left by prehistoric intelligence, which may explain why my children's rooms look the way they do. They just get it from that which they evolved from. G.K. Chesterton, the great Christian author, said, It is often supposed that when people stop believing in God, they believe in nothing. Alas, it is worse than that. When they stop believing in God, they believe in anything. This is perfectly illustrated, I think, in the life of Dr. Francis Crick, who, a brilliant man, was the co-discoverer of DNA. And as he analyzed the complexity of the human DNA, he concluded that there is no way that this, this complex being, you and I, could have evolved in five billion years. And which I would heartily agree. I would amen that conclusion. However, he did not, therefore, bend his knee to the Bible. He came up with a different theory. He said, since we could not have evolved in five billion years... We must have come from extraterrestrials. That they came and dropped primitive life on a spaceship here and then went back to their home. It seems amazing to me that such brilliant men will go to just ludicrous extremes in order to to escape the reality of God. To not admit that there is one that they must give an account And so I would like to suggest to you this morning that you did not come from E.T. You did not come from some planet long ago, but that you, as we have seen in our study of Genesis, are a special and unique act of a creative God who made you and I. And we shall see this once again here in Genesis chapter 2, God showing us his creation. In fact, in Genesis 1, we saw that God um, did this wonderful creative act, and we saw it on this kind of massive scale, didn't we? We we saw in in, in these six successive steps or six days, God creates everything. And in seeing that, we saw that he did it with great ease. And we gazed upon a powerful God and and a mighty God. We had this beautiful panoramic view of creation. Well, Genesis chapter 2, we also see God create, but the picture of God is vastly different. It's not a a picture of God's might and power, but it's a picture of his care and his tenderness in this creative act. Some would liken these two chapters in Genesis as to a film. Genesis 1 may be the beginning of the film where you where you have the whole picture of the world, the, the panoramic view. And then we get to Genesis chapter 2, we begin to, to f- focus in, zoom in, and, and come down through the clouds and over the mountains to one special and unique act of creation. Humanity, our first parents, Adam and Eve. And as we study this account in Genesis 2, my goal this morning is not to leave you in awe of God. It's not for you to be uh, 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 amazed at his power and might. My goal this morning is to make you homesick. Make you long for a place in which you were designed to be. In fact, it's just in Genesis chapter 2 that we have a picture of what life was like without sin. Nowhere else in Scripture. We get one chapter here and we see what God intended life to be like, what it was supposed to be like. And and I pray that God would give us a longing to return there. And one day we will as he recreates this earth and heaven and earth come together and we live forever with him upon a new creation. 
And so let's consider Genesis chapter 2, and as we do, we'll, we'll do so in four steps. First of all, we'll see that God gives life. Secondly, we'll see that God gives the world. Thirdly, we'll see that God gives work. And fourth, we'll see that God gives commands. We begin by seeing that God gives life. Verse 4 tells us these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day. The Lord God made the earth and the heavens when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field yet had sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And so what we're getting here is kind of the background of creation. You see in verse 5 it says there was no uh, bush or small plant. And you may think, well, wait a second. We saw in Genesis 1 that on day 3 he creates vegetation. What's going on here? Well, when, you, when it reads there is no bush here or small plant, it's not referring to the vegetation in which he created on day 3. It's actually referring to the vegetation, if you will, that he will create in Genesis 3. If you look in verse 18 of Genesis 3, it says, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And so when it says there's no bush or small plant there, the, the, the Hebrew tells us that this is a reference that there was no thorns or thistles yet there. There was no sin in this world. There was no rebellion. A wonderful world with, without sin. In fact, I think when it says here in verse 5 that the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, it's the same idea. When's the first time we see rain in the Bible? Well, it's in Genesis 6. And God declares, I will cause it to rain upon the earth. And that rain was a mighty act of God's judgment. And so when it says here in verse 5, there was no rain upon the earth, it's not saying that it was a desert, it was a dry place. What it is saying that there was no judgment upon the earth. God had yet not opposed sin yet because there was no sin. In fact, it wasn't a desert for verse 6 tells us, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the, the whole face of the ground. And so it was a lush place, a wonderful place. In fact, that, that word mist can also be translated as a spring. And maybe your Bible, like mine, has a footnote that says you could also translate it that a spring was watering the whole ground. And I think I'd like that interpretation better, and I'll explain a little bit later. But the, the picture is, is that there's a wonderful, beautiful place without sin or judgment. And there we see in verse 7, someone called the Lord God. And then the Lord God formed the man. Now, I want you to note the name that is given to God here in Genesis chapter 2. It's unique. We've already seen it in verse 4. We saw it again in verse 5. And now in verse 7, he is called the Lord God. Now, if you remember back, back in, in chapter 1, he was just called God. It's the Hebrew word Elohim. It, 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 it signifies God's power and his might. And so it's, he's called God here, but he's also, you have this, this, this new name that's given to him that's added to God. It's the Lord. That's the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's the personal name of God. And so when Moses is speaking with God in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, and he says, well, well if I go to Pharaoh, who should, I, who should I tell him is sending me? And God says, tell him I am is sending you. Well, I am is the name Yahweh. It's Jehovah. This is the name of God. And so we have here in Genesis chapter 2, both these put together. We have God in his power, Elohim. Maybe we could think of an English equivalent, king, and then we also have God in his very personal relationship with his creation, Yahweh. Or maybe we could think of uh, uh, an English equivalent as dad. It would almost be like saying in verse 7, then there was the king dad, is what he's telling us. And this is meaningful to me because it was on Father's Day that my children made for me a crown. And they, they decorated my easy chair as if it were a throne. And they spent the entire day calling me king daddy. I could get used to that. 
It somewhat backfired on me because they would say, King Daddy, may I have a cookie? King Daddy, may I watch television? And for some reason, I was just more inclined to give them what they wanted. There's this picture of this King Daddy here in Genesis chapter 2. We have this, the king who has the power to give life. We have this Yahweh or this dad who actually loves that which he's creating. There's affection and there's intimacy given to him. In fact, God is referred to as the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, almost every time in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. It's almost exclusive here in these two chapters of the Bible. Except in a couple verses in Genesis 3. Look in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent... We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, Elohim said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The only place in Genesis 2 and 3 that God is not referred to as the Lord God, but just God, because it's a lot easier to sin against your king than it is your dad. And so the serpent says, it didn't say your father surely said. He says, your king surely doesn't want you to do this. And here they're invited into this rebellion. But Genesis 2 is going to want to present who God is to us in a correct way, that he is both powerful and he is intimate. He loves that which he has made. And we see him creating here in verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man. He formed him. Now, up to this point, as we've seen God's creative act, how has he been creating? Remember, he, by speaking, let there be, and, there, and it was so. Let there be, and it was so. But when he gets to the creation of humanity, he doesn't speak it into creation. In fact, we even see this in Genesis 1. If you read carefully, he doesn't speak man into creation. He, he forms man. He makes us with his hands. He, he speaks everything else into creation, the animals into creation. But with us, he forms us. I, I believe he still does today. And I, I certainly know that, that God uses natural processes to create humanity, create men and women. But I believe in many ways God is uniquely involved in that. As the psalmist says, that he knits us together in our mother's womb. I believe God continues to make us. It's a picture of a, of a potter taking this clay and carefully molding it into a living being. In fact, Isaiah would say as much when he said in chapter 64, a very unique verse in the Old Testament, You are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are the work of your hands. We are the work of God's hands. Do you love things that are handmade? Right, don't you? You have something that's handmade, it's special to you. You, you bring it out, you present it to someone, you say, this was handcrafted for me. It's not off some assembly line. My children each have a quilt made by my Grammy, their great grandmother, and it's handmade. It's really no more special than any other blanket they have as far as quality goes. But the uniqueness of it is that it was made by someone who loves them. It's handmade. You need to understand this morning that you are handmade by God. You are handcrafted by him. He has made you. He has created you to be the person you are supposed to be. So please do not believe the lie. You are no accident. You are not the product of time and chance. You are here by God's design. He has made you and has done so with great affection. He has got his hands dirty because of his great love for you. In fact, he was dirty because you notice we're made from dirt. Verse 7. In case we're feeling a little high when we think about that being handmade by God, he wants to humble us a little bit perhaps. As we read in verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust 
of the ground. We're made from dirt. Great Christian commentator Matthew Henry says he is not made of gold dust, pearl dust, or diamond dust, but of common dust, the dust of the ground. That's what you come from. In fact, Moses perhaps didn't realize how accurate he was being. You know, if you remove all the water from your body, which is about 60% of the body, what you have left is dirt, just chemicals. In fact, there's a museum display that I've seen that is the outline of a human body and says, what would humanity look like without water? And there's 15 different vials filled with chemicals. Uh, It's filled with um, zinc and sodium and calcium and sulfur and iron, everything tied to the earth. There's no gold, by the way, in there. No silver, nothing of any value. In fact, if you took everything which you were made of and you sold it, you'd get about 450 for it. We're made from the dirt. We're made from dust. And therefore, we will return to dirt. Genesis 3.19, God says, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Perhaps you heard of the little boy who asked his mother, Is it true that we're made from dust, and after we die, we go back to dust? Mother replied, Yes, of course. This little boy then answered, Well, I looked under my bed this morning, and there's someone either coming or going. So we're made from. We're made from dirt, but not just dirt. You notice that we have received the breath of God within us. For verse 7 tells us, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So you're just not made from the dust of the ground, but God has given life to you. He has breathed into you. He has put his spirit into you. It reminds me of the prophet Ezekiel who stands at the valley of the dead bones and there's just an entire valley of of dry bones. And God says to this great man, prophesy to the breath, son of man. Say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. God has given you his breath. In fact, you notice he has given it to you in great intimacy, for he breathed upon the man's nostrils. I get the picture of God after he forms us with with his hands, getting down on his hands and knees, and with great intimacy, breathing into us. He's not simply making us, he's, he's giving us life in this beautiful and intimate picture. You've been knitted together by God, and he has kissed you into, into life. And so I want you to understand you get this from him. The result, according to verse 7, is that man became a living creature. The fact that you are here this morning, the fact that you are alive this morning, is a gift from the Lord God himself. I want you to understand that, friends, that life comes from God. This world will tell you, academia will tell you, that somehow the lifeless made life. The Bible will tell us that God is the one who gives life, and he has given it to you. And he has given it to this man, our father Adam, and this man needed a place to live, and so God gave him the world. God gives the world. Note verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. You like gardens? Everyone likes gardens. God likes gardens, evidently. He there plants a garden. When I was studying at Duke, the, one of the places I loved to go was the Sarah B. Duke Gardens. 
streams and pools and meadows and trees and birds and fish and little bridges, one of the most beautiful places. God loves gardens. He, he gives this man a garden, a paradise, the garden of the Lord, that he may have joy and delight. We love gardens. We hate gardening, right? But we love gardens. That's why we hire landscapers to do our gardening for us or have children to do our gardening for us. <laughs> Because we want the garden. We love the garden. And God makes this beautiful and wonderful garden. And it's just not a garden. Verse 9 tells us an orchard in the garden. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And there he, he puts in that garden these fruit trees. And he says they're good for food. Of course they are, right? They're fruit. Everyone loves fruit. And God puts these fruit trees in the garden so that we can, can, we can eat and, and take care of ourselves. So man is not left to fend for himself. He doesn't place them there and say, good luck. I hope you do okay. No, God actually puts him there and he begins to provide for him. And these trees that are good for food, and not just good for food, for verse 9 tells us that it's pleasant to the sight. You see, God's not just interested in the functional. He's interest, interested in the extravagant, the beautiful. And these trees are wonderful and, and, and beautiful. I, I remember when we bought our farm down in Charlotte County, one of the first things I did is I planted 15 fruit trees. Apples and peaches and plums and pears and cherry trees. And I, and I couldn't wait to feed my family as I'm subduing the, subduing the earth. And, and I can't wait for all my family to, in a couple of years, eat of this bountiful fruit. And all I ended up feeding, I'm afraid, were bugs and insects and birds. I don't know if you have any better luck with fruit trees. But these trees aren't covered with bugs. They're not brown and gray. They are beautiful. They are good for food. They are an opportunity for us to appreciate and rejoice in God as He cares for us. We also see that there are rivers in this garden. Verse 10 tells us a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So evidently Eden is this headwaters. This is why I think verse 6 refers to a spring and not mist. I believe out of Eden is coming these, this great the river that splits into four different rivers in order to nourish the world, as it were. And we see that these rivers are described for us here. In verse 11, the name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. That seems like an um, oxymoron to me. I thought gold was good. But maybe we, all we have is bad gold. This is the good gold here. And there's just not gold there. There's bedellum and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And so there we have this wonderful God who's made this wonderful place to live. A garden with water and trees and plants and rivers and precious stone and good gold and animals of all kind. Right, this is the place you want to live, isn't it? It's a place you can't afford, but it's a place that you want to move to. This is where you want to reside. It's all given to me for man's joy. That he may live forever in sinless communion with his creator, with his Lord God. In fact, in that garden, we saw in verse 9 that there's something called the tree of life that was in the midst of the garden. Man was designed to eat from this tree and to live forever. See, God didn't make man in order for man to wear out in 80 years or 800 years and just break down and die. God created it good, as Butch has reminded us. 
And he designed it to go on living forever. And he put this tree in there so man could partake of it. Not that it's a magical tree. It's just that God has decided that this tree would be, would be the source of God's blessing. The tree was his method by which we could live forever. And so the man was designed to live there in God's communion, enjoying his blessings forever. And people, of course, want to find this tree, don't they? Well, where is this tree? I want to go look for this tree. Well, this tree, I'm afraid, is gone. It didn't die. It's the tree of life, after all. But it's gone. The Bible tells us in Revelation 22 where it is. The angel then showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. With its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, Blessed are those who have the right to the tree of life. And God has evidently taken this tree up into heaven. And one day, heaven and earth, as we've established, shall be reunited. And there you and I, if we have bowed our knee to King Jesus, shall have the right to eat of this tree forever and enjoy the blessings of God upon us forever. In fact, Jesus Christ, I think, pointed to this when he said to the repentant thief as he hung upon the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. There's still paradise. There's still this beautiful, wonderful place where all those who are in Christ shall go and one day God shall fix this world. But here we see this wonderful and beautiful world which God originally provided for us. Verse 15 tells us the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. There he's placed. God God makes us. Then he makes this wonderful world, this gift from God, gardens and fruit and rivers and lush and gold and animals. Next week we'll see that he gives him a wife, in fact a naked wife to be perfectly honest. God is good, right? God is blessing man. He wants man to be filled with delight. In fact, the word Eden means luxury. The word Eden sometimes is translated as delight because God loves for us to delight and have joy and to celebrate. He not only gives us life, but he cares about us flourishing in that life. And this is what he wants for you to do. Though we do not live in this land anymore, we still live in a world in which God created and he wants us to flourish. He wants us to have abundant life. And God put man, uh, Adam in this garden and he has put me and my family in Loudoun County. And he has put you where he has put you in order that you may flourish and enjoy his abundant provision for you. And to find great delight in this world in which he has made for you and I. You see, he gives us this world because he's good. But you see, thirdly, he also gives us work. Verse 15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So God gives us work to do. The gift of the garden comes with this gift of work. I do want you to know that work comes before sin. There's no sin here. But there is work here. In fact, what came first? the, The garden or man? You see that? Man came first. And God said, okay, I need him to have something to do. See, God didn't create a garden and say, okay, well, you know what? I like this garden. I need someone to take care of it. I know what I'll do. I'll create man so he can come and care for the garden. No, that's not what God did at all. 
God created man who's made in God's likeness. Therefore, we're designed to be productive and working and active. And he said, well, he needs something to do. I'm going to give him a garden in order for him to go and have this work to do. It's just like the Sabbath, as we saw last week. We're not made to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made to serve us. Well, we're not, we're, work is, we're not made to serve work, but work is made to be a blessing to us. God gives us work. Don't you like work? I mean, if we're honest... I think men like work. We, we like to be productive. We're, we're always tinkering with something. We're always doing something. We're always working on some project. Even when men retire, they still find something to do. They're out mowing the grass or they're working on the house or they find some hobby to keep them busy. And this is why some of you wives live in a perpetual construction zone. Right? That's how I grew up. There's always another project. He worked all day and then he came home and did some more work. And he tore down a wall and put up another wall and he's always doing something. He's constantly working because God has put this in us to love, to work, to stay busy. My boys love to work. Give your boys jobs. Give them work. Tell them, put down the video games. Here's a job for them to do. They will thank you. They do. Give us some tools. My son Josiah has a whole, his whole tool set. Whenever we're, we're doing a project, he grabs his tool set. He loves to. When we are on the farm, he's constantly building things, making forts and building birdhouses and then building slingshots to shoot the birds that land in the birdhouse. <laughs> he loves always cutting down trees to make lumber for some next project. This what, he's a man. He likes to work. We, we live in a subdivision now. And my neighbors don't like it when he cuts down their trees. <laughs> I, told, I told him he's going to build you something cool. Just wait. But, but they don't care. Right? But men, men we, like, we like to work. Jesus Christ would say in John chapter 5, My father is working until now, and I am working also. And we shall work forever. Work came before sin. Work will be redeemed. In fact, I think you find a man who doesn't want to work, you'll find a man who's wilting. You'll find a man who's becoming a shell. They're, they're turning into a zombie. You find a man that willingly just wants to spend his life watching television. That's not a man. That's a zombie. He, he is becoming less and less of what God has created him to be. Now, I understand work is fallen, isn't it? There is now sin in work. Like men like to work, but we may not like our jobs. Um, but we like to be active. Sin has made work hard. We'll see this when we get to Genesis chapter 3. But we still like to be productive. We still like to have accomplishments. I don't think heaven is lying in a hammock under palm trees forever and ever and ever. I hope there's some of that. Right? I like palm trees. I like taking a nap. But I believe there's going to be work. And can you imagine work when it's not evil? Work when it's not fallen? When, when every time you measure, it's right? There's no frustration. There's no personnel conflicts. It doesn't grow tiresome. It's just accomplishment after accomplishment after accomplishment. Productivity, joy, creativity, satisfaction. I think perhaps we should thank God for the work he's given us. When we gather as a staff every morning, we, we read scripture and we pray together. And one of the things we always do is we thank God for our jobs. Because God has given it to us. And God gave this work to Adam in verse 15, you see the work is specifically to work and to work the garden and to keep the garden. You see, Eden's not a magical place. It needs to be cared for. He's told to exercise his dominion over it. 
And I know I've said this a number of times in our study of Genesis, if you'll allow me to say it one more time, is that you and I are to care for the environment. We are to be environmentalists. That is not a partisan issue. It is a biblical issue. God has made this world and put man in it and says, okay, here's the work, care for this place. It's not new, it's been hijacked, it's been taken well away from where it's supposed to be, but it's the work which God has given us. I appreciate what John Calvin said 500 years ago when he said the custody of the garden was given in charge to Adam to show that we possess the things which God has committed to our hands on the condition that, being content with the moderate use of them, we should take care of what shall remain. Let him who possesses a field so take take of its yearly fruits that he may not suffer the ground to be injured by its negligence, but let him endeavor to hand it down to posterity as he received it, or even better cultivated. Let everyone regard himself as a steward of God in all things which he possesses. I believe that would be good for us to do, to care for that which God puts in our hands. Well, you see, lastly, that God gives a command. God gives commandments. We see this here in verse 16. The Bible tells us, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. No, first of all, that God's not making a suggestion. God is not saying, okay, you know, guys, I have an idea. Let's get together. We could think about this. Maybe you could pray about this. I'm thinking that tree may be bad for you. What do you think? No, there's not a conference. There's not a discussion. It's just assumed, biblically, that God has the right to command. That man, as his creation, are under his authority. And so he comes and he, he commands Today, we don't like being commanded. We like to discover for ourselves. We like to to decide for us what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. The Bible tells us that's not our place. That's God's place. And what he commands, we are to do. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do? God commands. And here the command, in the midst of this abundant provision is for Adam not to eat of this tree of knowledge. And so God provides and provides and provides, and yet there is one thou shall not. There is one prohibition. Thou shall not eat of this tree. For this is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now there's a lot of debate as to what, what is the tree, what is this tree of knowledge of good and evil? And many people land on different areas. But let me just try to be simple, what I believe the scripture is teaching us. You see, Adam already has knowledge of good. He lives in a good place, in a good world, cared for by a good God, and there's good gold, and, and everything's good there. He knows good. What he doesn't know is evil. He has no idea what evil is. He doesn't know what bad is, what wrong is, what sin is, what rebellion is. He's not aware of that. He has no knowledge of that. I I remember when my children first heard kids calling each other names. And I was there at their time. Their eyes got all wide. And it never occurred to them that you can call somebody bad things. And they they looked at me and and talked to me privately and said, Daddy, what was that? That was sin. That's what that was. 
And they gain this knowledge. Well, Adam doesn't have that knowledge. If he eats of this tree, he will. He won't gain the knowledge of good, but he'll gain the knowledge of evil. You see, the tree's not magical, once again. It's not this, this special tree. It's just the act of eating it is sin. God told him not to, and if he eats of it, he's disobeying God, and therefore, he's becoming aware of evil. He could have been commanded not to do a, a number of things. God could have said, don't do jumping jacks, or don't pick pink roses on Tuesday, or, or don't put cream in your coffee. I mean, it could have been any type of prohibition that God would have, would have given Adam. And Adam is to obey him. To not obey him is to learn what evil is. And so God gives him this provision. Enjoy everything. Everything you have need is here. There's no anxiety, no trouble, no fear. Just one warning. Stay away from evil. Stay away from rebellion. See, if you rebel against me, it will kill you. This is God's good command. God commands, but his commands are good. He's like a parent who says, don't play with knives. You can play with your toys, play with books, play, play with your siblings, play with anything I've given you. Just, just don't play with knives because I love you and you're going to hurt yourself. And yet mankind comes along and says, don't tell me what to do. Who are you to give me commands? Don't tell me not to play with knives, you tyrant. Don't give me orders. Don't tell me I can't do this or I can't do this. But God places these commands on us because he loves us. He's, he's telling us, I love you, therefore don't, don't eat this. It's going to go a lot better for you in life if you will not eat of this tree, if you will do what I say. God's commands, friends, are for our good. We need to trust him. We need to believe him. May I tell you, the key to a good life is not wealth. It's not an education. It's not being brilliant. It's, it's not a new television or a new house or a new car or a new spouse. It's obeying. It's, it's as simple as that. You obey God and your life will go well. You will have joy and delight and satisfaction if you obey him. You do what God forbids, you're going to bring sadness, misery, and hardship on your life. God has given me opportunities over the years that I've pastored to, to meet with spouses who have trouble in their marriages. And quite often I listen to them for a good long time and they explain to me how their marriage is like a war zone and, and, and how living in that home is utter misery. And the one thing I always... I always suggest to them, I always offer this advice to them. I tell them, no one is forcing you to live this way. No one is holding a gun to your head and say, be miserable. Live at war. This is what you choose to live because of sin. This is what we teach our children when we discipline them. We always ask them when it's time for discipline, has your sin made you happy? Has your sin brought you safety? And we rehearse in our family that obedience leads to joy and security. Sin leads to sadness and insecurity and danger. God says, just obey me and it's going to go well. Do what I ask and you shall have an abundant life. And many people want to know, well, why, why does he even put the tree there? 
Right? I mean, <laughs> everything was good. Why do you have to put this tree? I mean, put it over in some faraway land if you have to make the tree. In fact, you notice where he puts it according to verse 9. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they're, they're right next to each other. And so you want to eat of that tree of life, what do you have to pass by? It's the forbidden tree. These are God's testing him. Do you love me? Or do you hate me? Do you trust me? Or do you disbelieve me? Will you submit to me? Or will you rebel against me? Every day man has to make that decision. Every day you and I have to make that decision. Because there are trees of knowledge all throughout our life. You don't have to go far to get in trouble, do you? You don't have to go far to be tempted. It's in our homes. It's at our work. It's on our televisions. It's at Best Buy. It's on the computer. It's in our hearts. Our land is littered with trees of knowledge of good and evil. It's our test. God says, do you love me? Do you believe that I want good for you? Will you submit to me? In the context of abundant provision which God has given you, the life in which he's given you today, this land in which you live, grace after grace, blessing after blessing, he has poured out upon you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he says, okay, in the midst of this abundant provision, do you trust me? And I'm afraid often I don't. And I eat from that tree that is forbidden to me because God is good. And you do as well. We all have. In fact, we do it over and over and over. That's why this world's a mess. That's why it doesn't look like Genesis 2. Why there's tornadoes and hurricanes and Droughts and floods and forest fires, planes falling out of the skies, why there's mental illness and cancer and all sorts of other problems in this world. The reason we don't live here anymore is because we've rebelled. That's why this world's a mess. That's why I'm a mess. That's why you're a mess. Because we've excluded ourselves from God. We've taken of that which he has told us not to take because he's good. All of us have done this. We do it every day. Perhaps you've done it this morning. And yet one day this man shows up, named Jesus. He lives a life without rebellion. He lives a life without partaking of this tree. And one day he stands before a massive crowd and he says, Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on that last day. You see, Jesus Christ has become the tree of life. And he has invited all of us to lay down our rebellion and come to him and to feed upon his broken flesh and to drink from his shed blood in order that we who had no life in us because of our rebellion may have that restored within us and shall have it forevermore that we shall be raised on that last day. 
Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. May I tell you, friends, based upon the authority of God's word, not upon some cultural nuance or, or new idea, but a word that has been given down and trusted by billions of people for thousands of years, Scripture tells us that we all have rebelled against God. It calls it sin. We have all done our own thing. We have all gone our own way. And yet God, in his great grace for us, offers us a second chance, offers us an opportunity to return to this land, by sending his son who lived a perfect life and died upon the cross. There he paid as my substitute, as a substitute for all who believe in him, the punishment for all our times we've gone to that tree of knowledge and eat from it. God poured out wrath upon Jesus, the perfect one, and he was raised three days later. And now he says to all who will hear him, if you will simply lay down your arms of rebellion and bend your knee to me as your king, I shall give you life and life forever. You can do that today. You can have life forever in God's presence. One day you shall return to this land of promise, this, this glorious land, and there shall live with your maker forever if you will simply surrender your life to King Jesus. And for those of us who have, us Christians this morning, us followers of Christ, may I remind you of what our Lord said on the eve of his crucifixion. According to Matthew 26, the Bible tells us now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In a moment, we're going to partake of this remembrance of that sacrifice. We're going to, to take an emblem that represents the broken body of Jesus Christ and the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. And as we do, I pray that your soul would feast upon what he has purchased for you by dying for you. In fact, he has not simply given you eternal life. One day he will give you Eden back with perfect communion with God forever, you will have eternal life in paradise. In fact, he would speak long ago through the prophet Ezekiel, on the, de on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. They will say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. One day we shall return to that place. And so my hope is that as these emblems are passed before you and you hold the bread in your hand and you wait for all of us to, to have that, that we may eat together in united fellowship, that you would, you would ponder and think and let your soul feast, not simply on the eternal life in which Christ has purchased for you, but upon the land in which one day he shall recreate and give to you this wonderful, incredible gift that we may live with one another forever with him in perfect harmony and that we may give him thanks. We may worship him through this meal. And so I'm going to ask the deacons if you will now come forward as we prepare to remember the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. I would like to let you know that if you're visiting with us here that we invite you to partake 
of the Lord's Supper if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian. If you are here this morning and you're visiting with us and you're not a Christian, we are delighted that you're here with us this morning and thank you for the honor of being here. But we would ask that as the plates are passed by, you would simply discreetly just pass them on to the person next and not participate.